So good to be here with each of you this morning, and I, I really do appreciate, uh, Paul, your wonderfully kind words and the encouragement that we've received from so many of you, and uh, just a set of delight to be here amongst this body, this, this local church. You know, there's, uh, there's a huge church in the world, right? And we get to be here with one another, and I'm grateful, like, uh, you know, some of you are... Um, new for the first time today. We welcome you. Some of you are returning recently, uh, coming for the first time, or this is your second or third time to come. We're so delighted you're here. We're so happy to see you, and just having the opportunity to worship together. So um, that's a quick thank you, but I just noticed that we have done a couple of extra things today, and so we're short on time, and you guys know I usually only preach like a 10-minute sermon. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just don't even like the sound of my voice, so... Uh, no, I will try to be short today, uh, but we have a really important message. And, um, you know, as we, as we have been looking at what it means to put our faith into action, we've been looking at these heroes of the Bible. We've been looking at some Old Testament figures. Last two weeks, we were looking at Peter in the book of Acts. And we talked about what does it look like for a believer to navigate the world where there's contention and where there's conflict, even within the church. And, and mentioning just, you know, we have all these denominations, all these different types of churches. Uh, I was with, uh, Sonia and I were with a group of pastors this weekend, just Friday, Saturday. And we were uh, kind of noticing, uh, we had this conversation noticing how in the past, if you didn't like the church near you, then you still went to it because <laughs> it was the only church near you. And some of our friends there were from Vermont, like northern Vermont. Like, if you don't like our church, there's the one other church in town, that kind of idea. You know, we live, I mean, we could probably uh, find 30 churches if we drove for one minute or two minutes or five minutes or whatever it is. Uh, and, and that's in New England. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. You could, you could get to 30 churches by walking for a minute. You know, it's just like, it's crazy. You know, this is kind of concept. Uh, so when we face contention in the church, oftentimes our, our impulse is to separate. But we saw how Peter helped, and, and James, and the elders, and Paul, and Barnabas helped the church go through conflict and come out the other side united instead of divided. But today, this is kind of a part two of that, even though we're looking at a different figure in the book of Acts. And this is Paul, and he was in our story last week. He was the one who was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and there were these uh, Jewish believers who thought that these Gentiles needed to get circumcised in order to become Christians, something that we don't struggle with today. Uh, but then Paul went on to do his ministry amongst the Gentiles, and he faced fierce opposition from all sides. So this isn't a theological conflict here. At this point, Paul is talking about an existential crisis for the church. And Paul had taken these missionary journeys and planted churches all over the Mediterranean world. And in Acts 20, Paul is heading back to Jerusalem. He's heading back there to celebrate the festivals. But he knows that when he gets there, because the Holy Spirit had spoken to him through prophecy and through dreams and through his own leading, he knew that he was going there and that he would never see his friends and partners in ministry again. He knew that this was the end of the road for him. And in fact, historically, it was the end of the road. He went to Jerusalem. He was arrested. They shipped him off to Rome. He was in prison, put on trial, and eventually he died there. 
He died there for the sake of the gospel. And but we see here is Paul's warning to the Ephesian church. And he, he, he had not been um, spending time in Ephesus. He had actually been sailing past Ephesus, and he called these Ephesian elders to come meet him. And we're going to read about this in just a moment. Uh, and so he gives them a message. So what I'd love for you to do is open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one just like this under a seat nearby. And of course, you can always pull out your phone or tablet or whatever uh, device that you have and open up a browser and go to Acts chapter 20. And we're reading from the NIV here. So we're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read kind of quickly. We're going to hone in on one point and talk about some examples. So that's our, that's our very quick plan for today. Okay. So this is Luke, by the way, telling the story of what happened. He says, we, so this is Luke, this is Paul, this is uh, everyone traveling with Paul. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed from Assos where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made his arrangement because he was going there on foot. And we, when we met up at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to uh, Mytilene. And the next day we set sail from there and arrived in Chios. And after that we crossed over to Samos and then the following day arrived in Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Melitus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I have lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, we could stop right there and have an entire sermon about Paul's perspective on his own life and the importance and value uh, of the gospel. We could stop right there and say, wow, what if we put our faith in action like Paul did? What if we were willing to put everything on the line for the sake of the gospel? Now, I preached that message two weeks ago, so you can go listen to it if you want to. It was about Peter, but it's the same message. It's the same idea. Uh, Paul and Peter are both faithful to the gospel above everything else. But what I'd like for us to do is to keep reading and see something different in this text that God has for us. In verse 25, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Paul knows it's the end. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. 
He's talking about men primarily who will come in and both teach an alternative gospel, a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not the gospel of grace. It is not the gospel of faith in a resurrected Savior. But it will either be a gospel of good works, a gospel of Old Testament law, a gospel of uh, you know, following certain rules to make everything work out for you. This, is, this has been repeated over and over in, in the New Testament, this conflict. And it will also be those who will physically oppress, persecute, and put to death believers in Jesus Christ. Paul's worried about these things. He says, even some of your own number will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So they're going to try to take people out of the true gospel and into this false gospel. He says, remember, for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And look what he says here in verse 32. This is the key verse for us today. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I commit you to God and to the word of grace. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that? Well, God is pretty obvious. He says, I commit you to the care of the Lord. Right? You're not going to be in this alone. You have God with you. But I also commit you to the word of grace, which is, in Paul's language, the word of the gospel, the word of truth. It's not just, it's, it's the scripture, but it's the ideas and the truth that God had made clear through Jesus Christ that there is this thing called the gospel, the good news of God, that the kingdom is at hand and it is coming to earth through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, and then finally through the giving of the spirit after Christ was raised up into heaven, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ in believers to work out the plan of God in the world. And we said earlier, Allison led us, that we were, we were um, you know, leaning in, to, to tra- joyfully leaning into transformation and using everything that God has given us for his mission and his glory. Right? Everything that God has put in us, this freedom in Christ, this forgiveness, this grace, this truth, this, this Holy Spirit, this power, all for God's mission and God's glory. This is why Paul says, my life means nothing to me, only the preaching of the gospel. But it just strikes me that Paul could easily have lashed out at these wolves. He could have said, wolves are coming, so you need to be fiery. Wolves are coming, so you need to be aggressive. Wolves are coming, so you need to be strong. He doesn't say those things. He says, wolves are coming, so you need the gospel. Wolves are coming, so you need the words of grace. You need the words of truth. You need the words of life. You know, I recently read an article in Christianity Today called uh, Who Canceled Paul? I think is what it's entitled. And, and it's just talking about how Paul, he typically, he comes in contact, conflict with a lot of people in the Bible. But he typically doesn't name names. He typically doesn't attack them. Most often what Paul does is he talks not to the wolves, but he talks to the sheep. And he says, if you just remember the gospel, you'll be protected from the wolves. If you just understand what Jesus was all about, then the wolves will be taken care of on their own. 
So for example, are there false apostles in the church who are emphasizing their own greatness and their own strength and pointing out Paul's weakness? So if you did that first, uh, Second Corinthians study with us, you know the entire book of Second Corinthians is about these false prophets, these false apostles, false teachers who are trying to literally draw people out of Paul's ministry of the gospel into this false ministry of the gospel. So what does Paul do? Does he say, oh, watch out for uh, Andrew. Watch out for Zechariah. Watch out for, you know, I'm trying to think of names of people who aren't in this room. You know, uh, watch out for these horrible people. Watch out for these scoundrels. They're awful. And he could name them and point them out and say, have nothing to do with them. He doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He says, oh, they're strong. You know who's weak? Jesus is weak. The gospel is all about a powerful God, man, savior who willingly went to death on the cross. The cross that signified his scorn, his shame, disgrace, weakness, powerlessness before the government. That's our savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't accentuate his power. He accentuated his weakness so that you could become strong. Therefore, I will be weak so that you can be strong. That's Paul's answer to these false apostles. He actually doubles down on his own weakness because that's what the gospel's about. Are there Christians fighting amongst themselves, trying to put themselves above others in Philippi? If you've read Philippians 2, you know that's a big problem in the book of Philippians. So what does Paul do? Does he say, uh, you know, shame on Joseph. Shame on other name that's not here in our sanctuary right now. (laughs) He doesn't do that. No, he doesn't point out their failure. What he does is he points back to Jesus. And he reminds us that the gospel, again, it's about a God who had everything. A God who had all power, who had all might, who had all strength. And he willingly let it go to come to earth in the form of a human being. And not just any human being, but a human being who was the servant and slave of all. And not just a servant, but a servant who willingly went to death for you and for me. So Jesus didn't elevate Himself. He lowered Himself. But when Jesus lowered Himself, God raised Him up and gave Him a name that was above all names, that at the name of Christ Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth would bow And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul says, if you want to be great, lower yourself. He doesn't just attack the conflict. He reminds them of the gospel. Last week we talked about these Judaizers, men primarily from Jerusalem, who tried to convince Gentiles that if you want to be a believer in Christ, you need to become Jewish first. And they wanted to put on them the burden of the Old Testament law. Well, in Galatians, we see the same thing happening. Paul is preaching the gospel, and these men from Jerusalem come and try to convince men from James, the brother of Jesus, come and try to convince people you have to be Jewish to be Christian, even to the point that the apostle Peter stopped having lunch with the Gentiles for fear that he would be charged with being an unfaithful Jew. Paul calls out Peter, calls out these men, But it's not so much about them. He points them back to the gospel. He says the gospel is that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ 
not by circumcision. The gospel is a gift that you can't earn. It's not from eating or not eating with the right people. He says that anyone who is working for their salvation is by implication saying that the death of Jesus Christ isn't enough. Right? If you need to get saved from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then also do these good works for God to receive you, then Jesus isn't enough. He says you're scorning the cross of Christ. You're nullifying the gospel if you try then to please God by your works. He's not saying not to do good works. He says, but not for the motivation of pleasing God, not for the motivation of being accepted, not so that you can be saved. Paul faced lots of situations like this, and he always pointed them back to the gospel. Now, this would be a great message for us to hear and just stop right here. And I would go home, and I would enjoy my lunch, and you would enjoy your lunch, and we would go about our day and have a great day. But now we need to get specific about our world. Now we need to get specific about our situation. And not all of, not everything. Let's just take some examples. Now, this is something that's been on my heart lately because I don't know what you guys read, and I don't know what you see, but there have been a lot of, um, there's just been a lot of, um, kind of articles and stuff on social media and all sorts of things where I've seen repeatedly Christians who are lashing out in public and attacking one another over all sorts of issues that have nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing to do with who Jesus is and everything to do with politics, with uh, how how our public world is run, you know, how things are, are happen and what, you know, what's done about it. Um, I, see, I see friends lashing out against friends in anger because uh, they say something that's, that they don't like. You know, their friend says something they don't like. And it's this visceral, aggressive response. And what I see then is I see other Christians who attack them for doing it, Right? Oh, well, now I'm going to lash out at you. And it's this vicious cycle that should never have begun in the first place. And so Paul's not here. I mean, Paul's here, but the Apostle Paul's not here. So then I say to you, remember the gospel, church. And by the way, not just for you, but for others around you that you interact with. Remind them of the gospel. That the gospel doesn't allow that kind of behavior. I I literally... um, I read something recently from a Christian, professing Christian political candidate who said, you know, our side hates the right people. You know, our political folks, we're good because we hate the right people. This is a professing Christian. And I just thought, that's, that, that's not allowed by the gospel. The first reason is, When you were enemies of God, God gave His Son for you. When I was an enemy of God, Jesus Christ died for me. So the proper response to anyone that you deem your enemy is to sacrificially love them. Right? Jesus says, don't hate your enemies, but love your enemies. And the second is this. 
is that our real enemies are not those people. By the way, if you feel in your heart like you have enemies on this earth that are human beings, I'm telling you, the gospel says no. Because our enemies are not flesh and blood, but the powers and principalities of the air. It's Satan. It's his horde of demonic minions who do and work evil in the world. We do not have enemies that are human. You do not have political enemies who are human. You do not have religious enemies who are, who are human. You don't have any kind of enemy that's human. Any one person on this planet that you might even possibly conceive of as your enemy, they're actually the person God has called you to reach out to in love and to serve and to draw into his kingdom. So there's no room for hating anyone on this planet in the gospel. You can hate Satan. If you have hate in your heart, direct it there. You can hate evil. You can hate destruction. But you cannot hate people. There's no room in the gospel for hating people. I think the above, I think the thing that we just mentioned kind of illuminates uh, also this belief among some Christians that our highest calling and allegiance is to turn this nation into a Christian nation somehow. That the main purpose for us being here is to actually get other people to do what God called us to do. But the gospel says, no, that's not your highest allegiance. That's not your highest calling. At least not through power. Not through coercion. Not through the government. You know, I remind you that when we placed our faith in Christ, first of all, we were released as citizens of this world. And we became citizens of a kingdom in heaven. And Paul doesn't say, oh, now you have a dual citizenship. You're citizens of this world and citizens of heaven. He doesn't, there's no room in the gospel for dual citizenship like that. He says, we are not citizens of this world, but we are citizens of heaven. He says, you no longer have allegiance to the kingdom of, of this world. You have only allegiance to the kingdom of God. And any allegiance that we might have, so for example, I'm not telling you to not say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. I'm not saying not to do that, but I am saying this. As a believer, if and when you pledge allegiance to the flag, if you're not experiencing some tension in that, then we need to be reminded of the gospel. Because the gospel says, I can have allegiance to this government until and unless it is in conflict with my allegiance to God. And so my allegiance to God always has to come first. And Jesus warns us about serving two masters. It's very, very, very difficult, if not impossible. The way I like to think of it is, because I serve the Lord, I can be a good citizen in my nation. Because I have allegiance to Christ, I can be a good citizen here. But I cannot do it out of allegiance primarily to this nation. That doesn't mean you don't serve in the military. That's an honorable calling. It doesn't mean you don't serve in politics. That's an honorable calling. But many have made it a dishonorable calling by putting it first. And it can never be first, not for the believer. And so we need to feel that tension, that, that, uh, that sense of uh, the recognition, I guess, that the things of this world, in this country, any country, of your preferred political party, any political party, of your preferred candidate, any candidate, 
of, of anyone who's running anything anywhere, there will always be aspects of it that are in conflict with the kingdom of God because no part of this world is fully redeemed yet. No part of it. No part of this world has been fully removed of sin yet, least of all your own part. All right, I, and I just want to also remind you that the, the gospel forces us to confront this dual reality in the world. You know, Paul doesn't just say, watch out for those outsiders who are not believers and who are evil. He says, watch out also for the insiders because they're going to mess it up too. And so the gospel says two things simultaneously. One, you are a child of God, made in the image of God, being formed into the image of Jesus Christ, and you're a sinner that cannot save yourself and you need the forgiveness of a Savior. And these two things are held in tension all the time within us and within our society. So I would suggest to you that whatever political party you're a part of, and I know we have people in this room that are members of uh, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, whatever political party you feel most aligned to, that party is sinful, okay? And it has some redeeming qualities as well. But what the gospel teaches us Paul says elsewhere, he says, look, we, I don't judge the world because the gospel teaches us that without Christ, we don't have the hope of, of, of righteousness. I assume that unbelievers will do unrighteous things. But believers, I call to a higher standard, and I say in Christ, there's this higher standard. So even if your political party thinks that the other political party is evil, well, of course they are. Of course they're evil. They're human. It's a human system. It's a human structure. It will have evil. But you should first call to account your own. You should first call into account the one that you feel most aligned with because that's where you actually have the most influence to make a change. I don't think anyone in this room thinks... You know, I really want to be corrected by someone who has no idea what they're talking about. Now, most of us don't want to be corrected by the people who do know what they're talking about either. But you're going to have better hearing with someone who knows you and loves you than someone who hates you, right? So the Christian's calling is to first uh, call out their own, not to call out others. And I would, again, remind you that the gospel doesn't call us to influence the world through power. It calls us to influence the world through weakness. And we don't like that. I hate that. I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. I don't want to be seen as weak. I don't want to feel weak. I don't want you to think I'm weak. I don't want to actually be weak. There's nothing about that calling that I enjoy. And yet it is the only way that the gospel calls us to influence the world. Paul says in the first letter to the Corinthians, he says... God uses the small things of the world to shame the big things of the world. He uses the, the foolish to shame the wise. He uses the weak to shame the strong. God prefers and insists on working through your weakness instead of working through your strength. Everything, if you grew up in this country and if you've been here a while, I don't know what it's like in other countries. I can't speak to that. Everything in our culture tells us so we should influence through our strength. 
And that alone is reason to be um, cautious and actually careful about any time Christians want political power. Now, hear me out. We need Christians in politics or else it's just going to be even worse. But never can we put our hope there. Never. Paul doesn't instruct these leaders in the Ephesian church. Guys, do whatever you can to get a big platform on Facebook and, and Instagram and I don't even know what people are using. He doesn't say, get a big platform so that you'll have the ability to share your message far and wide. He doesn't say, um, build big, big uh, uh, infrastructure of power and money so that you can have influence in the culture. He doesn't say, hey, can one of you guys just try to get elected as Caesar? Can we just work that out? No. He says, I commend you to God and the word of grace. I commend you to the Lord and to the gospel. And every single time, in every single letter, and I I encourage you to, to check me on that, every single time Paul tells someone you should do this, he always points it back to the gospel. You shouldn't cause your brother to stumble because Jesus died for that brother. Right? He says, you know, love your enemy because Jesus loved you when you were God's enemy. Over and over back to the gospel. So, if you think it's your Christian duty to be strong and oppose these evil forces in the world, I want to remind you that Paul, when he talks about strength, it's strength to stand. And everything else is an expression of weakness. Isn't that profound? Isn't that so contrary to everything that we think we're supposed to be doing? You know, I think as Christians, we are sometimes the first to point fingers. And I want to encourage you that whether it's conflict in the church um, or even conflict outside of the church, don't point fingers. Don't point fingers. And, and, and I know I'm pointing a finger right now. <laughs> but don't do that. Is that what you were laughing at? I thought maybe you were. Oh, my sermon points. Don't point. Okay. Either way, she got me. Don't point fingers. Don't be so quick to, to, to illustrate or, or justify yourself by what someone else is doing. How many times have you seen, this makes me, this drives me, this is a personal pet peeve. Oh, such and such, and, and again, the politics that happens all the time on all sides. Look, I'm not pointing at any group particularly. Such and such is a horrible leader. Oh, well, such and such on your side is a horrible leader. Like, who cares? We're talking about <laughs> this horrible thing that happened. Like, can we agree that they're both horrible? Why don't we start there? You know? And, and look, I know there's some good men and women in politics. I'm not trying to say that all men and, pol- men and women in politics are evil either, except that they're all human. And they all fall short. But don't be so quick to take your eyes off what's going on in your own camp to point it to another. Instead, point to the gospel. person in your group did such and such evil thing. You're right, the gospel calls us to humility and repentance, so I agree with you, I acknowledge that. I think we need to address that as a group. 
What kind of response would you get from the attacker if you responded with humility and repentance instead of pointing the finger at them? You might find before it's over that you actually have won a friend and maybe more than that, a listening ear for the gospel instead of an enemy. And after you've pointed to the gospel, point again to the gospel. And then after that, point again to the gospel. And then when the next thing comes up, point again to the gospel. Because I'm telling you, church, there is no point in your Christian walk where you graduate beyond the gospel. All you do is go deeper and deeper into the gospel. There is, no, there is nothing beyond the gospel for you as a believer. Everything that you're hoping for in your life, everything that you're hoping for from God, every act of, of grace, every act of righteousness, every, act of, you know, every understanding and wisdom that you long for, it's all found as you go deeper into the gospel, not beyond it. So if you want to have the kind of life that Peter had, that Paul had, if you want to have the kind of life that your spiritual heroes have, keep pressing into the gospel. Keep pointing back to the gospel. If we want the community of this local church, this local body to be everything we can be, then collectively we need to point each other consistently back to the gospel. Guys, I'm telling you, I know for a fact because I'm one of you and because we're all human that we are going to hurt each other and we have already hurt each other and we are going to do things that are wrong, that are ungodly, and then we can either divide or we can point to the gospel and come back together stronger than we were to begin with. That are, those are the options. Those are the only options. And as I said last week, it takes courage to enter into that conflict and point to the gospel instead of avoiding it, ignoring it, and running away from it. But that doesn't take us anywhere. Paul says, be on your guard. I commit you to God and to His Word of grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to a ship. I just read that part at the end to remind you. This is the very last thing Paul's going to say to this church that he planted. This church that he founded. This church that he served. It's the very last thing, and he says, I commend to you God and the word of grace. And so church, we need God and the gospel. And I think we know we need God. So I encourage you always and everywhere, bring it back to the gospel. Because the gospel is not just our way to salvation. It's the core of who we are. It's the core of what we do. And it's the core of what we believe. In fact, it's everything. It's always gospel, all the time. We don't need, and we will not honestly be helped by anything else except more, more, more of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we we sit here and stand here 
not as people who have it all together, but as people who rest in the arms of a God who has it all together. We stand and sit here not as people who have attained the fullness of righteousness in ourselves, but those who are saved by a Messiah who was fully righteous, was without sin, was fully obedient to his Father. Lord, we come not as people who are strong, but as people who are weak, because Jesus was weak. And just like Jesus, we invite you to raise us up on your terms, not on our terms. And so, God, we come to you not as people who have perfected how to engage with this really broken and hurting and dangerous world that we live in, but rather as people who have been shown by you how to treat a broken, hurting, dangerous world through sacrificial love, through weakness, through humility. And so God, we want to just do it the way you do it so that we would truly be the body of Christ on earth. His hands, his feet, his mouth, his ears. Lord, that when people scorn us, that we would respond not in kind, not by getting bigger, but by getting smaller. And if that's true, then we don't need to yearn for a political reality that helps us to be strong. But we can be content resting in your strength because you're our true king. You're our true president. I mean, that that's even sounds ridiculous to say because you're so much more. Yeah, Lord, it wasn't Caesar. It wasn't Rome. And it's not the United States and it's certainly not a political party or a president. It's not who we put our trust in. We put our trust in you. So Lord, help us today, tomorrow. Help us when we see that item on the news or when we read that thing on social media or where our friend or colleague speaks those words that bring that initial sense of, I need to lash out against that and to say, no, I can actually just receive and bear this. Because Jesus received and bore so much more for me. And he invites me into that cruciform life. But Lord, we're scared and so we need courage. Or we're afraid. We lack wisdom, so we need your wisdom. Lord, may you grant us that bravery. May you grant us that insight. May your love carry us through. As Sonia talked about, that joy that carries us through so we might do things your way instead of ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.